0: Ask one question. Five questions,
1: six questions at a time. I was Um, gonna
0: text him that same thing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A608 After Hours. I'm Monica Higgins.
2: And I'm Uche Meiji.
0: And we are delighted to have with us today, Marius Müller, who we will introduce in just a moment. Um, So Uche, this week, what are we thinking about? Um, On my end, I am thinking a lot about psychological safety. And that's that term which we finally, finally actually defined this week. It's the It's an aspect of organizational culture or team culture, and it's the idea that people feel psychologically safe when they feel comfortable speaking up, asking for help, admitting errors without fear of retribution or punishment in any way, and it's just so hard to create conditions of psychological safety, and we talked about how it's important for the leader to be intentional in creating that culture that you can't just demand that that culture start happening somehow magically and that you have a role to play, not just as a leader, but as colleagues. So if you're sitting in a meeting, amplifying these other voices and these important voices, um, and there are lots of different ways to do that, but again, it's around intentionality. And so that's what I've been thinking about. And also just this idea of both psychological safety and the notion of accountability, that we're not leaving behind the idea that people still need to feel accountable for producing excellent outcomes for, in our case, it would be kids. That's our ultimate, you know, that's our ultimate goal to help kids succeed in in education systems. But both psychological safety and accountability, those are things that I'm thinking about. How mm-hmm. about you?
2: Yeah, I'm. I think I'm in the same boat. I'm thinking along the same lines. I mean, there has been a lot this week. Um, So like you said, we talked about two cases. One of them, some of you listeners may still remember, maybe you were old enough, maybe you read about in the past, the Challenger shuttle disaster. Um, I believe it was in the, I forgot what year it was, but it was the 1980s. And um, yeah, the, the shuttle exploded. And what we looked at was the conversation that preceded the actual launch And the dynamics of the conversation that led to perhaps failure of communication and so on and so forth that impacted um, that ultimately tragic decision that led to the tragic accident. And then we also looked um, at the children's hospital case, which talked about, which looked at a patient error, which is something that if you haven't experienced yourself, listeners, you might've heard about um, where a child um, is given the wrong, medication. And of course, there's the conversation about what happens in the immediate aftermath, the conversation with parents, but also the broader conversation is like, how can organization learn from tragedies like this? And a lot of this is about to your point, Monica, what you're talking about earlier, creating these conditions of psychological safety where people feel comfortable, um, challenging and learning and sharing. So I'm thinking about like how somebody can from whatever positionality they have in the organization, whether they're like, you know, top in the rung, they're a star, they're like, maybe a new hire and so on and so forth. But how can they help foster the conditions for psychological safety where people feel comfortable, not only voicing their opinions or disagreeing up the ladder, but being vulnerable and making their failures and accompanying and accompanying learning public and or asking questions instead of trying to defend positions. That's a lot of what we talked about this week. Sometimes defending positions that even they know vehemently are indefensible. And ultimately this culture, this this vulnerability benefits the organization. And if you can't change like the design factors, you're not maybe one of these executives who has the ability to change the systems and structures that could support this cultural change what can you do at a tactical level? I mean, within meetings, within interactions, because again, it's all about relationships. People are these organizations. So how do we develop and leverage these relationships? So yeah, a lot on my mind, a lot on our mind, mm-hmm. I think. that's right. Yeah, lots to reflect on. So today, it is my utmost pleasure to introduce our guest, I hope I'm going to say the name somewhat similar to the way Monica pronounced it. Um, Marius Müller is Marius um, took my course, um, I think last year, and he's a consultant and facilitator at Lead um, and. Lead mindsets and capabilities. And in that job, he supports individuals, groups, and organizations to develop and grow, often in context of large-scale transformation, something that's very familiar to our students. Marys loves spending his time on projects where he can create meaningful and deep connections that span the clients' organizations holistically, collaborating closely from top leadership to inter- individual contributors. So those who may have the ability to change the systems and structures or those who may not, but can still influence the organization in their own way. Um, so thank you, Marius, for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add by way of introduction?
1: It's my, my pleasure Um, being, being here with you and um, yeah, looking forward to our conversation.
2: <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Mm. So, Marius, can you tell us a little bit about your trajectory that brought you, I guess, to HGSC, and what you've done since?
1: Sure. Uh, The getting there was um, I took uh, exactly two classes at the um, School of Education at Harvard. Uh, I was primarily enrolled in uh, the Harvard Kennedy School as a McCloy Fellow and did my master in public administration there. Um, but I absolutely wanted to take some classes at the um, School of Education because they're um, uh, very much in line with what I was interested in and even more in line with what I'm currently doing. In fact, Um, what brought me to um, HKS was um, specifically one project I was working uh, working at at, um, when I was consulting with McKinsey. I did a um, pro bono transformation project, so to say, in the midst of um, what many people call the refugee crisis 2015-2016 in Germany, where um, almost a million of refugees suddenly came into the country um, and gratefully were um, accepted, but it was, of course, a major, major um, uh, impact on the institutions and the organizations working there, especially one um, one smaller organization in Berlin, which was responsible for welcoming and, and um, hosting the refugees that initially had 1,000 uh, refugees per year, then 1,000 per month, then 1,000 per weeks, and then 1,000 a wow. day. Um, and My so goodness. the question was, how can you transform an organization to cope with that massive demand? Um, and that was just just insanely interesting, but also, um, um, also interesting to see what kind of the role of leadership um, what uh, had played in, in in either changing the organization or not changing the organization, and so um from there, uh, my interest was to, uh, to work with public um, public sector organizations, but especially to facilitate um, let's say a a productive um, relationship with with the change mm. and that's how I came to HKS and from there um uh, yeah, after I graduated i um that's what I did. I started at uh, there's a small boutique, boutique consultancy based in Berlin, again, um, that specializes on, let's say, large-scale transformations. Um, I'm mostly working with social impact organizations that I work um, working globally, which um, makes it spe- specifically interesting because now with the pandemic uh, in global organizations that are used to, uh, used to uh, where, where the, the staff is used to travel a lot to meet each other and now everything being stopped that's, of course, um, another major impact on on the organization's culture. And how do you, wow. how do you, how do you work with that? That's, that's
2: interesting. So, yeah, that is interesting. Could you say a little bit more about that? Like how, so this past year, I mean, the pandemic happened. And besides the pandemic and the shutting down and the health crises, depending on where you are in the world, there were other crises stacked on top of it. So I'm curious how that's impacted both i guess how you work which is what you were starting to talk about but also perhaps the work itself so what kind of challenges that you're running into
1: sure yeah um i mean the work the work itself so one of them let's say the the most the, the vehicle i usually use in order to uh, um to provoke change and to create change mm-hmm. is through, through workshops um so yeah bringing people together um having having um meaningful conversations um usually multi day workshops either with uh, leadership teams or um um larger teams um and of course that's not possible that had like yeah was simply not possible um starting february last year so since february basically everything uh was done um online virtually um that was super interesting to see so I think just just last year I made the math I facilitated I think somewhat around 700-800 hours of virtual workshops um <laughs> so um zoom was was my life is my life um and yeah trying to replicate the 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 let's say the, the magic you're trying to create in in-person in workshops in in zoom and I'm, I'm I always get surprised how how good that actually works um you still can create meaningful conversations and good and um, good intimate moments even um when looking at a, at a screen so that's that's one piece, and the second piece I guess you're referring to is of course the um the massive uh, let's say the the outburst of of the, at least the symptoms of inequality we experience um and in the world and, mm-hmm. and I guess it's um we have similar uh, similar stories in germany, not the, not the same. I guess you're when when we when you talk racism, it's um for, especially in Germany, of course the 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 word race is um is connected to the fascism, and so we we would never use the word race. Um, but if that doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist in Germany, of course. Uh, and the question is not whether or not we we are racist, but uh, rather how we uh, are racist, and we and we don't talk about uh, black or white or. Uh, Hispanic people, but about uh, foreigners or people with uh, uh, background of like minority background or, mig- or m- migration background. That's usually how we call it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, working in international, uh, especially NGOs that I'm doing, there's um, there's always um, the sub sub of inequality of of racism and 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 white privilege and white power that you have to. Um, um you have to uh, tackle and approach and and preferably dismantle Mm. so that's that's that's, i guess also plays somewhat into my into the work that i'm doing
2: as in as i'm listening to you the context is very different as you were saying and so like how you think about race and what and To whether you even talk about race, and then what does it mean in terms of like who are the different minorities and so on and so forth? And then you brought up your perspective, kind of your positionality, and how maybe you're thinking about it. So, of like white privilege. So, how has your identity impacted the work that you do now? I'm specifically curious given that you started at McKinsey, perhaps not. You said this was pro bono when you started doing the work with the immigration? Just,
1: just, just one project.
2: Yeah. So perhaps that wasn't real. I mean, so that area may ha- perhaps wasn't your focus initially at McKinsey. And so how you transitioned and how your identities perhaps implicated in that transition of interest.
1: Maybe um, to, best, uh, to best answer your question. So what, what was my, uh, my immediate next step after working uh, with McKinsey was uh working for a b- extremely small um, but amazingly um 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 just an amazing uh, ngo um i think they they have a staff of 5 and so i did a small project on um behavior change for uh for uh children in eastern african schools on uh, wash so how can you help um, um children to actually wash their hands um which is now even more timely than ever, I guess.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And wh- what I'm saying is because I, I like when you talk about identity, but I, what I was mostly struggling with is kind of the identity of a consultant. So um, being a consultant, being a male consultant, being a white male consultant, of course, always comes with the, 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 the notion of a lot of, um, a lot, a lot of power, um, even if you don't wanna talk about this, because power is usually a, a, a dirty word that no one wants to talk about, but of course there is power. Um and so I've always struggled with the identity of being a consultant. So that's why I call I, I prefer calling myself myself a facilitator, because it um it uh, extrapolates at least less as as power. I guess that's the identity piece I'm mostly I'm most uh struggling with.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and have you h- changed how you th- I'm sure the struggle continues. We're all I'm always struggling with my identity. But has Anything changing so far as how you think about your identity with relation to your work? Sure, I guess the um,
1: um, I guess the the way of working
2: um, um, the
1: um, how we at least call it uh, the, a very co-creative way. So at, at least we 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 don't do kind of uh, the work for clients, but we do work with clients, mm-hmm. and so that's. Um, that levels out at least a, a part of the um, of a potential power imbalance that you might have mm-hmm. and and the authority that that comes with being a, a consultant and someone who has to kind of give advice, where I usually challenge this notion of is it really me who has the answer? Um, should I sh- can I even have the answer? or Is it rather a, um, me bringing in, in a different perspective? And as we combine these different pers- perspectives, and we are, um, yeah, we are humble. We uh, try to inquire a lot, uh, kind of yeah, thinking about the ch- the challenger case that you've noted that you that have mentioned. I think that's the that's that's the way to go, and being more being more um, effective in in these in these times where everything changes so fast, and it <laughs> just simply can't be uh, the one authority, the one expert. Wow.
0: So, Maris, I actually long, 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 long time ago was a consultant, too. Um, I worked at this big strategy firm called Bain & Company, so I think McKinsey folks <laughs> you probably have heard of it. Um, and it's so interesting you talk about that power dynamic, because I remember times at which I thought that actually it was the opposite, that the people doing the work had the power and that we didn't have the power. So... So interesting. But you're right. I mean, as a consultant coming in, oftentimes you're expected to have the answer. Um, I'm curious, just one question on that, just follow up. Were you explicit about your orientation to working with, or are you, to working with your client organizations? So in other words, you say something like, you know. I may not have all the answers or you obviously, you know what I'm saying? Because this this links actually to our conversation about psychological safety and about admitting fallibility or the possibility thereof. We had a nifty conversation after class today about what that looks like in action. So I'm just wondering how explicit you are in your work about that potential sure, power yeah. dynamic.
1: Yeah. yeah, I guess there's, there's, there's um, to bring in a little bit of the of the Harvard flavor, of course, I guess there's, there's not only the psychological safety piece, but also the adaptive leadership piece that kind of imf- adapt the leadership, the adaptive leadership, the mm-hmm. high feds adaptive leadership. That's um, where I usually want to take a step back and say, look, I'm not the one who can provide the answers. This is especially working, um, working in, a, in an environment where we're talking about changing cultures. Um, right. I, I simply cannot be the one who's doing the work for you. Uh, you have to change your culture, and mm-hmm. I don't even know uh, which way this should go. So, I'm only the one who facilitates a certain process, ah. and i'm I'm supporting you in this process, but ultimately, it's you who has you, you need to understand what what problems you're facing and consequently what actions you should take in order to adapt in order to um, to develop in order um to grow so that's um that's what I, I think i make very explicit and even in my yeah. in online workshops that i that i uh that i facilitate i think that's that's something i uh try to make a, a very explicit but also sometimes very i try to um i try to hone in on, on this implicitly from um yeah the link to psychological safety could be um, often enough, what I'm experiencing are the most powerful online workshops that, that I uh, that I've seen are the ones where I I actually had a huge failure at the beginning. So usually sure. it's when I try to try to share my screen and simple things right. simply do not work. <laughs> I well, we don't understand to, I realize all. I want to send out this, <laughs> this link to an online whiteboard and I just can't find it. And then I'm like, and so I literally just say, look, I I I I think I, I failed here. as <laughs> my bad. Give me, give me just one second, I'm gonna quickly correct it. And you will notice mm-hmm. after, if the workshop runs for, th- for three hours, the next three hours, people are so much more, more likely to ask for help. The more the most quiet people are the ones who come up and, and say, Look, Marius, I have uh, I'm struggling with technology, I'm struggling here, I don't know how to, I don't know how to use Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, this is kind of this um, modeling fallibility that we always oh. talk about for creating psychological safety, right? Where the, let's say, the, the leader and in these workshops, I am, I am at least the designated authority. If, if they see that even I struggle and even I right. run into yeah. problems, then people are super open to, um, um, to speak up and to raise concerns, uh, etc. Oh. So that's, that's um, something I've noticed a lot.
0: Sounds like they're giving you some grace, huh? Right? Isn't <laughs> mm-hmm. It's something yes. we've been talking about. Is the meaning <laughs> grace. of grace? It's so interesting. Um, that's so helpful. I really appreciate that example. Um, so you heard at the beginning that we've been thinking about psychological safety and this idea of somehow maintaining a sense of accountability at the same time. And obviously, you know, you're working with organizations to bring about culture change can you speak a little bit to now not the so much the you know the work that you do in the workshops but more generally and obviously it's connected how do you how do you enable organizations to create their own climates of psychological safety and accountability how do you help them change their their cultures what have you learned
1: Yes, that's about five questions. For <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, I start off with the, the last one. How 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 do you? I mean, again, I think it's super important that I that it's not me who who changes the culture. Yeah. Um, that would be that would be completely yeah. wrong if an external would come in and say, "Look, this is what you what you should should do." What I usually try to do is kind of I try to facilitate the process. And mm-hmm. um, for changing culture, I think the most important thing is. First, you want to understand where you want to go ahead to, like what's, what's the desired culture you want to have? Do you want to create, for example, psychological safety? Do you want to have a, a, a less hierarchy? Do you want, want people to, to always speak up? Um, and then you want to understand where you're coming from. So what are we currently doing? Um, if we say that people should always speak up, at, but in a meeting I always see only the CEO speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, that's an example of, of where we're currently standing. And so often enough, what we're doing is we, we come in and try to uh, uh, let's say diagnose the culture. Um, also, this in a very co-creative way. So it's not us doing it, but uh, the employees doing it themselves. And from that on, they would then see, um, okay, now we understand where we are at the moment. Now we understand where we want to go next, and how can we bridge that gap? What actions can we take? What change initiatives can we launch? How? What can the leadership do? What can individual contributors do? because ultimate culture is, is shaped by everyone, and not only by top management.
0: Yeah, it seems like, I mean, obviously, this is such tricky work to facilitate, uh, let alone to, you know, lead and manage, but on Zoom, Marius. So, tell us a little bit about doing this work on Zoom, culture change, facilitating culture change on Zoom. Are there any insights that might be helpful? because assuming our, our listeners are actually involved in this process and may actually continue to work on Zoom for quite a bit of time. So is there anything you've learned there?
2: Heck, I'm taking notes too. <laughs> I,
0: I believe me.
2: So I think the, um,
1: when I think about um, Zoom or um, virtual overall, I think it's, it's interesting and I, I'm actually using a a chart that I've taken from, from your class, from is class, um, I think it was, is it cited by Roberto? I think it's this one chart that says, what are the factors influencing psychological safety? And I think there you have, uh, you yes. have status difference, you have leadership and you have um, previous, um, previous interactions level of familiarity. Yes, exactly. And so what I always say is like, look, now with a sudden remote shift what has happened i mean first of all the level of familiarity usually that goes down so social capital erodes so that already makes it super hard to create psychological sa- safety and the other piece is status difference um i wouldn't say that so status status different at least from my perspective is there's um there has been an interesting twist in status difference so in, in the past i think it was um Classic, I say the the, the CEO. She ha- she's the one who has a lot of status, and there's an the individual contributor who has less. Okay, but then suddenly in a Zoom meeting, where for many people there's a new environment, mm-hmm. you then will see uh, the CEO. She's probably older compared to um, a um, a person who is age 25 is super familiar with technology, mm-hmm. and so suddenly she's the one who's uh, who has kind of a higher status because she can, she's oh. super fluent in technology, super fluent in Zoom. And so that's super interesting to notice um, how that also creates kind of a weird dynamic when it comes to psychological safety. So I have seasoned managers who are suddenly completely calm in an online meeting because they find it hard to talk to a screen. Uh, but then you have these youngsters Natural. who suddenly excel and they they are uh, they speak up and they are super um, open. and that's um, that's something like something I have noticed a pattern. and then yeah, really cool to see how that kind of chart that i that I learned from you um, helps me understanding this um, this pattern.
0: And that is Michael Roberto, just to give credit yeah. where credit's <laughs> due. It's, it's such a powerful... I'm so glad you're using that. That's great. That's so fascinating, too. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah.
1: And the, the, the second piece that I'm, I always talk about is um, actually one of your next, next door neighbors. Um, I think his first name is Henry Buell from uh, HBS, from the Harvard Business School, who has this concept about operational transparency. Um, usually coming from consumer psychology, where um, you know these um, public coffee vending machines, where you kind of you throw in a dollar, and of course it, it 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 makes your coffee. And usually, what it also does, it tells you different steps. It will tell you boiling water, adding adding coffee powder, etc. And you, as a consumer, I mean, you you know how how people make coffee, right? So why does the coffee machine tell you how to make a coffee? Well, that's operation transparency because it creates trust. If you know what's happening behind the scenes, people will have trust. Uh, And now with Zoom and people being out of the office, you don't know what your coworker is working on. You don't know what your your boss is working on. Your boss doesn't know what you are working on. And so um, what I always tell people is be as transparent as possible. Use um, Google Docs so you can see how people are making progress regularly use uh, Kanban boards, etc. Right? You know, so I think it's that's super important because you can't do you you can't you can't look over shoulders anymore. You can't you don't have the water cooler effect, of course, that's one thing, but you can't look over the shoulders of other people. And what you also can't do is kind of management by wandering where you could just walk around and see what's currently happening. And so replacing this that has to be super, super on purpose and and being being aware of that you have to take extra effort. To, over-communicate, to over communicate, uh, to over to over how you say how you say in English to make, make transparent uh, to overly make it transparent yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. that's great so these so are the powerful. two things that I that I've noticed and that I usually tell people when it comes to remote work and and Zoom
2: wow Thank you. so so thoughtful Marius thank you this this has been. Entertaining and educational. Um, and just to let you know, marius so you're probably wondering why Monica and I started laughing at a certain point when you mentioned Google Docs. <laughs> That's a certain point of um, I wouldn't say contention, but you know, word versus docs. And yeah, anyway. So I'm you more. I wanna um, I'm <laughs> <curious now. laughs> Monica, what you yeah. <laughs> do I, I like to share. I,
0: I've obviously learned a lot about Google Docs, but it's not it's not my favorite. So yeah, for a variety of reasons. But
2: anyway, yeah, Um, no, this, I mean, your reflection and your thought process around just these. So I'm taking a lot away from this conversation. And one of the things like I'm I think I made a note. There's so many amazing things that you said, but I made a note when you were talking about even just the wording in terms of consultant versus facilitator and we're co-creating versus me advising. Like these small sometimes throwaway notions, throwaway behaviors that might not seem as important can have so much power in terms of impacting the culture and impacting how people interact. I mean, I think you talked about it again when you were talking about the um coffee machine explaining behind, like what's actually going on. So it's trust, like these little things, these movements, these moves that people may not, may do instinctively or may not be aware of the importance, but they can actually have, um, disproportionate impact on trust on these aspects of building a culture and how these things take on different, um, significance once we transfer into a new context such as zoom, but perhaps any other new context. So, yeah, there's a lot that I'm taking away from this conversation. Um, in addition to how well you were seemed to remember the readings and the cases from the mm-hmm. class, we So, all that. <laughs> Monica, what are you thinking? What are you taking uh, away from my this?
0: Goodness. Um, thank you so much, Marius. It was terrific talking with you. I, um, so many things. So one of the, um, one of your personal examples about, you know, modeling fallibility and not appropriately sharing the screen or whatever. And it's so interesting because, you know, a lot of times on Zoom, I think people, yeah, they get flustered and they try and cover up or they have somebody, you know, can you just like look at this while I do that? You know, it's something behind the curtain. you yeah, don't just just give me a sec. But instead it was um, you know, I'm, I've am i made a mistake here and just admitting and leaning into the error, which then is just so powerful for other people because they can see that it's fine, you know, that you're having, you know, a technological challenge or any kind of challenge. I just, I loved that example because so many times we try and hide our <laughs> errors and you leaned right into it. So I love that. Um, well, we I love the notion. End. Huh? <laughs> I know my the dog is being quiet or... right now, but actually, Leo is um, Leo is chiming in, so I will I will let him let him speak. Exactly. Let, let the dog bark. Um, <laughs> so, um, operational transparency. I, I I love that idea, and um, in case teaching, we call that being more directive, telling people where you're going to go and then going there. And I I see that in your practice, and I think that that's extremely powerful. And then third, I love this idea of the flipped status hierarchy in Zoom. I, I mean, I definitely have noticed it. I just hadn't really thought about it and its impact on psychological safety, and now I will. So um, with the youngins understanding the technology, feeling more comfortable, and us older folks learning, um, lots of learning, no doubt.
2: <laughs> Indeed.
0: Lots and lots of learning. So we have some fun questions for you, if you don't mind. That's asking you. Is sure. that good? Okay. We think they're fun, but um
2: <laughs> they're fun. Deal with it.
0: <laughs> That's right. We declare them fun. So uh dessert, Marius. Do you have a favorite? Uh,
1: I think my favorite to eat is probably um tiramisu. Um I'm very classy. My favorite to make is a um a recipe that's called Kladera Dutch, that no one knows, but, uh, but my family, so to say. So it's a, oh, a yeah. every please. time I want to make a dessert, I always think about that dessert. And I know that it, my cousin came up with this recipe and I always forget what it is. So I always text my mom, please, <laughs> and you send me the recipe. And I think I have in my, in my message history, WhatsApp. I think I have at least 15 or 20 times that I'm like, please send me like <laughs> the recipe. And I, I, that's yeah, just. But like, what is
0: it though? Can yeah. you describe it? <laughs> I'm like, no. the, um, i
1: like, um, I should have come prepared because I now <laughs> I couldn't tell. But I, so what I do remember is it's uh, it's basically uh, layers of uh, frozen raspberries, and um, kind of this mix of mascarpone and and like mm-hmm. um like sour cream, so to say, but less sour. Um, and wow. on top, you have, you have almonds, you know, kind of mm. almonds put in, onto a, like a, a pan and then roasted almonds on top with a little bit of sugar. And that's wow.
2: actually quite delicious.
0: Sounds delicious. Mm,
2: I'm, I'm getting mm. hungry. Wow. Nice. So I'm going to ask you a question that kind of, well, it's very different. What are you most grateful for right now?
1: education. I guess the, the
2: education that, that's,
1: that then led to my like the, the, the freedom and liberty I'm currently enjoying. Uh, I think the education leading to me being a knowledge worker, mm-hmm. knowledge worker giving me the freedom to, um, to work either remotely or from home and that during a pandemic where so many people are simply are forced to work to go to mm-hmm. factories, to go to other places and being exposed to, to health risk, I think that's just an, um, yeah, that's just I mean yeah, amazing to be a knowledge worker at this moment in time. I mm-hmm. think that's just um, a huge privilege. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um- so our last question is what's one thing you wish somebody had told you about life after Harvard?
2: It's going to be easier. I actually thought
1: uh, my life at during Harvard was quite stressful, uh, at least I was self-imposed stress. I I thought I had to excel everywhere. though it was absolutely not necessary, so um, so now I I think I I experience less of this um, of the self-made stress of the self-made anxiety. So that's mm. that's just um, very relieving, and I hope that I. It's it's a, a matter of me having having grown and developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just uh, so yeah. I guess uh, and let's actually talk to a few a uh, few um, classmates, and I think many people. Do we experience this, um, this, this, stress, the self-induced stress at um, well-being in Harvard, um, even though everyone is so open and welcome and and cheerful and friendly, still um, there is this feeling of never being good enough. I think that's something that that Harvard is actually is struggling with, mm-hmm. and still needs to get better yeah. with.
2: Yeah, I actually think I remember conversation we had towards the end of class, um, Marius, where we were talking about this sense of I've graduated from Harvard. I must do this automatically and do this now. And that also being part of the stress that continues from the experience of being at Harvard. Um, And I'm glad that I'm glad that you're, I mean, I wish people could see his background. He's super tan. He's got this pink stucco background he's so relaxed yet he's doing such amazing work like you're it's yeah i can see i'm glad that it's working out so well for you and thank you're so, you so thoughtful
0: much. yeah it's kind of terrific conversation loved no. all the examples yes really appreciate it
1: thank you, thank you so much and uh, thanks for uh, thanks for having me um, yeah, and I'm, I'm somewhat, uh, somewhat jealous of all the students uh, at the moment. Uh, I envy them being in your class again. So that's, uh, that was a huge learning for me.
2: If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear other conversations where Monica and I interview leaders in the social sector, you can find these conversations at bit.ly forward slash 8608 after hours. That's B I T dot L Y forward slash A six oh eight after hours.